Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Why do schools in low-income communities usually have the fewest resources? Why are the healthiest foods in grocery stores the most expensive options? Why does crime seem to happen to poor people most often? Poverty is a huge stressor on the lives of more than 45 million Americans living in it. It leads to homelessness and hunger, and it disproportionately affects children. For those living in poverty, it can seem like the only constant in their lives. For over one quarter of the people living in poverty, their impoverishment is long-term. This chronic poverty amplifies, amplifies the damages it does to the health, education, safety of the people living in it. As part of WITF's Chasing the Dream, Poverty and Opportunity in America project, we're joined in the studio by Kristen Rotz, who is president of the United Way of Pennsylvania. Ms. Rotz, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you. Also joining us is Stephen Martinez, communications director of Community Action Association of Pennsylvania, Ms. Martinez, or Ms. How about Mr. Martinez? Thank you very much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And our, our focus today is going to be on the limitations presented by poverty. We're also going to hear from some real people. I think I mentioned this last week with the, the first episode of Chasing the Dream, that uh, one of the features of this is we want to hear from people who have experienced it and uh, talk about uh, you know what experiences they've had hear their stories. Uh, we will be talking with at least one person today uh, who has lived through poverty. And uh, now her life has uh, changed around a little bit, but uh, she says she probably, if you go by the numbers, is still living in poverty. But we'll hear her story in a little in a little while. But we'd like to hear from you as well. And we understand that this is one of those things that uh, there are a lot of people who don't want to talk about the experiences. It's something they'd rather forget. Uh, but if you would like to tell your story, you don't have to give your name. That's up to you. Uh, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Uh, you don't have to be someone who has experienced poverty to call in. If you have a question or you have a comment, feel free to give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. All right, let's start with that basic question. How does poverty limit those experiencing it? Kristen? Poverty is a day-to-day -day experience which really affects a person's life in terms of what they have to focus on that's a little different from what many other people have to focus on on a day-to-day -day basis. So if you're living in a low-income situation and you have a family to take care of, uh, you may be working a full-time job and a part-time job to try to make ends meet, which means that you have a little less time to be focused on working with the kids on the homework when they're at home in the evenings, making sure that they have a good healthy meal cooked for them to eat at night. Um, so you really get more bogged down in the day-to-day -day essentials. Um, and when we talk about poverty and we talk about basic needs, there's actually a couple different levels to this. So poverty itself is not necessarily, if someone's living above the poverty level, they are still not living comfortably. Um, basic needs we quantify in terms of housing and transportation and food, childcare and healthcare. Um, if you're living at the federal government's definition of the poverty level- Which is? Uh, it, it is currently around $16,000 for an individual. Um, that is still very different and, and even above and beyond that. Typically, when you look at the self-sufficiency index, you have to get to roughly at least double that income before you are living at a place where you can afford all of your basic needs and then hopefully have a little bit that you can put back into savings for a rainy day. So what 
many people take for granted those essentials you're talking about. I have been, you know, someone who is making above that uh, poverty level is thinking about uh, maybe the material things that uh, that they want to buy or the vacation they want to take or, you know, the car that they want to drive. People who live in poverty can't take those things for granted while other people are thinking, oh, I can do this if I save a little bit of money. They're thinking about how I'm going to feed the kids today. Correct. Okay. Stephen, you collect, as part of your job, communications director, yes. uh, you collect a lot of these stories. What are I some do. of the stories that uh, you've heard over the years of uh, how people are impacted, how they are limited by their poverty? Right. So we do collect these stories through our self-sufficiency awards. And um, I think one of the things that people find really interesting about these awards is uh, what puts a person into poverty in the first place. Um, I think you'd be surprised. Uh, and it might overcome a few of the biases that we would have about poverty. Mm -hmm. um, well, and let me just stop you there for a second, and, and I want you to continue, but I th one of the reasons that we want to do this program is because I think there are m there's more than just one thing. There are several things that would surprise people about uh, poverty. I mean, Kristen, one of the things I thought of that... Uh, you know, but a lot of people, the stereotype they have is if there's someone living in poverty, they're automatically getting government assistance. I saw that uh, only 17.6% of the people living below the poverty line in Pennsylvania are receiving any kind of government assistance. That would surprise a lot of people. Sorry, Stephen, for interrupting you, but go ahead, getting into poverty in the first place. Right. And, and so we try to share these stories, uh, let a person just try to communicate. And I think the reason why people get into poverty might surprise you. I think it might be a little bit more relatable than than you would imagine. Um, uh, people who are low income or maybe, as Kristen said, just right above that uh, line are not necessarily living comfortably. And in fact, they're, they're just one emergency away from going right back in. And so we try to share these stories, uh, overcome a few of the biases. And uh, yeah. What biases are there? Um, I think that, yeah, I hate to say it this way, but it's that, that they're, that they're lazy, right? That they're, but I mean, poor people are just as hard as working as we are. In fact, they might even be harder working because they're working multiple jobs just to try to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. And so I think, um, the bias of, I think it's better. I think it's important to say that they are hardworking and that, um, yeah. Well, you know, obviously with any population, you can say that, you know, there are a few, probably some people out there who, you know, try to take advantage of the system. But unfortunately, yeah. there seem to be a lot of people who believe that the majority of those who are living in poverty could do some things better on their own to get that somehow they are doing something wrong to mm -hmm. get in that situation. So let's talk about some of the specific limitations. I mean, we've talked generalities. What are some of the specifics that you've heard? So transportation is definitely a limitation, and that actually is something that is a common theme in rural areas. Um, is something you might not necessarily think about, but if you don't have a reliable vehicle to get to a job every day, uh, you might land a job and then have difficulty keeping the job because you can't keep your normal routine based on your transportation. Uh, in urban areas, you obviously have more access to mass transit, but then that also somewhat limits your opportunities for employment, so you have to look to find a job that is accessible by your transportation. Um, housing costs in a lot of areas are out of the individual's control. So depending on where they live, the cost of housing may be very unattainable, even difficult to find some place to rent. Um, you find more people living together collectively to try to make those 
ends meet. Um, so housing is definitely a factor as well. Availability of housing as well as affordability of housing are challenges that someone living in poverty or on the edge of poverty would definitely encounter. Stephen, some Absolutely. of the stories you've heard. Well, uh, I think of I think of a lady at our one of our agencies, C- Commission on Economic Opportunity, who uh, was a it's a was a mother, and her um, husband had just recently left her, and she was pregnant, and uh, so that's already a tough situation to be in. <clears throat> and then she finds out that her forthcoming child is going to be has an illness, a disease that's going to happen, and so sure enough, the she has the child has the disease. So she has this, and then also at the same time, her mother had died as well. And so that's just kind of a, a perfect storm of bad situations that happened to her. It was her mother dying, her child being sick, her husband leaving. And so, you know, I just mentioned that some of these people are just one emergency away from, from dipping down below the poverty line. Well, a number of things happened to her. And, and so she needed help. She needed that kind of temporary assistance to help elevate her back up into the middle class where she had started. Mm-hmm. Uh... You know, I and again, I forgive me for jumping around here because there are a lot of a lot of topics to discuss. But uh, uh, you know, there are, are are certain demographics or characteristics of those who are uh, more likely to be poor people. And you just mentioned one: single mothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see, and we we seem to see more of that nowadays, where there are uh, single parent households, and most often. Uh, are being led by uh, a single mother. I, I don't want you to put a percentage on it, but is that something that uh, you do see very often? We definitely hear a lot about poverty among single mothers. We hear a lot about poverty among minorities, and that's statistically demonstrated. I don't have those numbers with me, but uh, that is statistically demonstrated. So, for example, uh, an initiative that we actually both worked on within the last year was related to the child care benefit subsidy cliff. So a person who is working and trying to kind of earn their way um, when they're at a lower income, they can get assistance from the state for a child care costs. And as their income goes up, they slowly take on a higher percentage of those child care costs, but they were actually being cut off completely from that benefit uh, just below 200% of the federal poverty level. And that is still not to the point where a person can reasonably afford their child care completely alongside all of their other household expenses. So we were actually hearing stories from our local United Ways about mothers who were progressing in the workforce. They were having success. They were moving up. But when they reached that point where the income level crossed that boundary, they actually were looking at a set of circumstances where they could take a pay raise, but they would then be completely responsible for their child care costs, and that outweighed the increase in the income. So they were choosing to stay at that lower level of compensation in their current job so that they didn't have to face that challenge. Now, obviously, we want people to move up and to take more responsibility for their child care costs. But if you're making a decision to limit yourself and limit your income so that you don't have to face that extra difficulty in your life, it's a counterproductive policy. So uh, the community action agencies and United Ways work together to ask the um, General Assembly in Pennsylvania to change that law. So. They have set up the opportunity now for families to be eligible for uh, a dec- an increasing level of responsibility for child care costs up to 300% of the federal poverty level. And at this point, we just need uh, that to be funded in the state budget so it can be implemented. Stephen, that's a heck of a decision to have to make, that uh, you don't want your income to increase because your child care costs will outweigh it. 
Right. I mean, that's that's a tough decision. It's a tough decision. And the way the bill reads now, hopefully, if it's funded, is it'll slowly kind of taper off the amounts over over time. So it's not a complete loss of all benefits. It'll kind of they'll slowly. Uh, just be reduced over time. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to talk to someone here who has uh, a child care cost each week, and I think uh, for those who have not had to pay for child care in recent years, you'd be surprised at how high it is. So we'll talk more about that in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Part of WITF's Chasing the Dream, Poverty and Opportunity in America. It's a multi-platform public media initiative that provides a deeper understanding of the impact of poverty on American society. Funding for this initiative is provided by the JPB and Ford Foundations with additional local support from Capital Area Intermediate Unit, the Community First Fund, Lancaster, Lebanon, Habitat for Humanity, and Restore and Tri-County Community Action. Learn more at witf.org slash chasing chasing the dream. All right, we have someone on the phone right now, and uh, joining us is Dahlia Marrero, and uh, Ms. Marrero lives in uh, Bethlehem. Uh, Dahlia, welcome to the program. Good morning. And uh, I want to thank you very much for agreeing to talk to, to us because uh, now you are uh, a bit of a success story that uh, you've overcome a lot and uh, you're now working and things are getting better from the conversation we've had. But I want you to tell your story. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, your situation, uh, what, what the last few years have been like. Hi. Um, yeah, uh, I have gone through um, a series of uh, barriers trying to get through them to kind of get myself out of poverty, still finding myself 10 years later, slowly working out of it, um, but not completely out of poverty. Um, I started off, I was a single mom, high school dropout, um, received my GED uh, with no work skills, uh, no employment history, and kind of um, started on cash assistance and received childcare subsidies that way. And have gone to school throughout the time um, time period and kind of trying to establish myself and a career and to be able to earn a livable wage. When you, now you say you still probably are living in poverty, but mm-hmm. uh, as we also said that uh, things are a little bit better now, but you, you are working, but uh, the depths of, of your poverty, what limitations were on you? What was your life like at that time that uh, you had to think about on a daily basis? Um, it was kind of hard. There were some decisions I would have to make, whether to pay a bill or, you know, provide the basic necessities for my children. Um, occasionally, I would, well, not occasionally, very frequently I would find myself putting bills off to the side just to make sure I could provide the basic necessities for my children and my household. Um, you know, and that resulted, it was always a constant rut, just trying to catch up and keep up. It's like playing um, just a game of cat and mouse, basically, with my bills. How about the the, the stress level? I mean, what kind of stress did that uh, put you under? It, it put me under a lot of stress, um, undue stress that just affected my everyday living. I was exhausted. I was tired. I was frustrated. Just basically trying to get through the day on a regular basis. When you say get through the day, I mean, we talked earlier about uh, uh, how the essentials that many people take for granted, like housing, food, Mm -hmm. transportation, were those all challenges? Um, Those were all challenges at one point. Um, I've been fortunate enough to 
be able to figure things out along the way. And with all the programs and going to school, I've been able to get through things. Um, child care was provided. Subsidies were um, also provided to uh, transportation assistance to help get me back and forth to and from school to complete that. But it was it was a struggle um, trying to just basically deal with everything that came in and some days I didn't have gas to put in my car. Um, if my car needed a repair, I was putting that off uh, because I just didn't have the money to do it. The uh, father of your children, did he provide any uh, support? Very infrequently. Um, I think there may be a handful of times that he did. It was nothing that was ever consistent enough for me to rely on. And um, Domestic relations basically doesn't have the authority anymore to actually seek out and find him. What do you mean they don't have the authority? Um, well, last time I asked, they said uh, legislation has changed how they are able to track down fathers who don't, parents who don't pay um, their child support. Uh, they're not able to do as do searches the way they used to. Um, based on some legislation that was passed quite a few years ago. Did you go to court trying to uh, get assistance um, from I him? I did, yes. Um, there was. There is an active court order, um, but they never were able to enforce it, not being able to find him. Um, anytime I had information, I would provide it to them, but their their resources are also limited as to what they can do to try and find them. And at some point, you just get exhausted. I'm not going to continue taking off of work and taking my time to try and find someone that you can't find. Was there a time when your kids actually had to go hungry? Uh, no. I always made sure that my children had um, food. I, at one point, was working three jobs just to make sure things could get covered after I had graduated um, with my associates. But I always made sure that my children had food. Mm -hmm. You said that uh, you dropped out of school. When, you didn't make, when did you make the decision that you wanted to get your GED and to pursue a degree? Um, I kind of, when I was pregnant with my second daughter, I knew I had to figure, uh, I had to do something more than, I, than what I was currently doing. Um, I had tried working at a call center for a little bit, and it didn't really work out based on childcare and things like that. And I knew that if I wanted more of a livable wage or, or any kind of income increase, I needed to go back to school. So that's how I started with the GED. How old were you when you, uh, when you dropped out? Um, I believe I was 17. 17. Mm -hmm. so, so you were a junior or a senior in high school? A senior, yeah. A senior in high school, okay. Um, have you been able to uh, find better opportunities after going back to school, I mean, getting that GED and uh, getting your associate's degree? Absolutely. Um, I Once I received my GED, I did a career development class, uh, which was 30 days long. After that, I got a, like a part-time work-study position with the program that I had um, just went through. Uh, the director of the program allowed me to come in and learn these work, these skills I had never obtained, um, clerical skills that I was able to utilize. And once I graduated um, in 2009 with my associates, I obtained a part-time job with that program, mm. which my income went from minimum wage at the time, which just had increased to 725 to about 11, I think it was $11 when I started then. 
Yeah, that at four dollar an hour, I'm sure that uh, that that. that uh, helped or at least made, made you feel better anyway. I don't yeah. know if it, if it made a big difference, but uh, probably made you feel a whole lot better anyway. Um, so as you and you just mentioned, but uh, when we talked the other day, you said this as well, that uh, your children were always the priority. And you also said that uh, there were times when uh, uh, bills had to, to go unpaid. Uh, but child care has become, I mean, it's expensive. What do you pay each week? I- Yes, I went and looked at that. Um, it's actually $87.10 per child. I know it's like around $80. So it's about $170-something a week. $177 some dollars a week. Yeah. That's a lot. I mean, yeah. that's almost, that's between seven and $800 a month. Mm-hmm. And that's what many people pay for rent or uh, maybe even more than what they pay for rent. Uh, what kind of child care? Is it a daycare center or what? Uh, no, I have a home home provider. Um, fortunately, my grandmother's been able to watch my children for me, so um, I work, she watches them, but I pay her the copay. Um, the, she only gets paid, I want to say her paycheck from the actual child care subsidy without mine is maybe like around two to $300 a month. Mm-hmm. And then my um, co-pays are what actually give her the income. Mm. So you are working today. Are you working full-time? Yes, I am working full-time. But you also said that you're probably under that poverty line. I think it's between fifteen and $16,000 a year for a single person. But with two kids, I don't mm-hmm. know what the poverty line is. Um, the poverty line with two kids at 200% with three is about 39000 um, and I fall in the 150% range. Um, I make about 28000 a year. Mm-hmm. And that's to cover all necessities. Mm-hmm. So you, you, technically you probably are under that, that, that poverty line. Uh, so what challenges do you still have today? Um, basic challenge. I mean, I can't really afford uh, rent. Um, I do live in a basement of my grandparents' house also. Um, it's a little unfurnished apartment it's a department but it's not really an apartment there's three of us um it's i I can't save money to buy a house um i can't save money to rent a place um basically i just i pay my bills i live paycheck to paycheck like and i'm sure most americans do pay my bills work pay my bills work Mm. So what advice would you give people or what would you say to people who are living in poverty today? Um, Basically, uh, you have to work towards your goals. Um, It is a very long journey. It's tough. There's decisions you have to make. Sometimes it's hard. Um, But if you keep striving for better, eventually I do believe there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, Ten years going, I have one more year left to finish my bachelor's degree, and I've seen how Every time I complete one of these goals, my income does also increase um, based on my work experience and the education I've been able to tie into it. Um, it's just it's a struggle, and you just got to keep going through it. You know, one of the things I just thought of as you were answering the question is, what are some of the things that we as society or uh, as a system, uh, when, we, when we're, we're trying to uh, uh, work with uh, p- poor people, what could we do better? Um, I think a lot of it is the the stigma of stereotypes is, is very burdening on someone who's poor and realizing that, you know, we, we all do most, 
have jobs and we work. It's trying to help us figure out how to get to that next step. Um, career development programs like New Choices, they work well because they take that individual skill sets and shows them how to apply them to a workforce to hopefully find a position that's going to allow you to grow with income and as a person. Um, there, there needs to be more training programs, and I don't mean like just job search training, like education training. Not everyone's set up, able to go to school, to college, but teach them a skill set, something they can take into the workforce so that they're employable. Mm. Dami Marrero, thank you very much for uh, speaking with us this morning, and uh, congratulations on the degree and very close to the bachelor's degree, so uh, hopefully it won't be much longer for that as well, but it uh, uh, sounds like uh, you're, you're on your way. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good day. Mm-hmm. And if you have a story to tell like Dahlia's, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Today is part of WITF's Chasing the Dream initiative, talking about poverty and opportunity in America. Our guest here in the studio, Kristen Rotz, who is president of the United Way of Pennsylvania, and Stephen Martinez, communications director with the Community Action Association of Pennsylvania. Again, 1-800-729-7532. I'm glad that... uh, Dahlia did call in, and we had an opportunity to talk to her. Your reaction, your response to what uh, her story, that uh, what uh, she had to say. Well, first of all, I think we got to acknowledge, I mean, what strength and perseverance. She just talked about 10 years she's been working at different goals, and she's making headway, and she's still working. So clearly there's an incredible amount of strength. There's been a lot of support that's been provided to her, but there's a lot that she has had to do for herself as well. And I think that that is really a testament to overcoming some of the barriers that were sitting in her way. She talked a little bit about the health impacts, the stress, um, and that sh- we, we heard about that from her vantage point. We have to step back and look at that from the vantage point of children who live in poverty as well. Um, there's been a lot of research done about adverse childhood experiences, and there are many categories of adverse childhood experiences of which economic hardship is one of them. So. A child who experiences economic hardship already is set back in life in terms of the obstacles that they will have to overcome. The more adverse childhood experiences a child uh, does experience in in their youth, um, the more difficulty they will have to overcome. So this might be physical or sexual abuse. This might be drug addiction. Um, There's any number of these types of adverse childhood events, but we know that over the long term... I think that's part of why we see this cycle of poverty, where poverty continues from one generation to the next. It's just really hard to work your way out of that cycle. Um, And we know that there are ways to accomplish that. There are some successes that have been proven, um, and they're really important for the work of community action and for the work of United Way in the communities that they serve. Mm -hmm. Stephen? Um, Definitely agree with all that. And then another thing that stood out to me is she said, uh, slowly working my way out of it. And I think that that really encapsulates a lot of the clients that we work with as well. Um, In fact, it's an average of about five years that you're a client with Community Action because it takes about five years to 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 get out of it. And once you're in poverty, you know it's it's hard to get out because they talk about it as being a cycle. So you have to kind of check away at the things that you need to stabilize and then move up into the middle class. And so I heard her story, and it sounds like she's really been working hard at it and and is is really doing great things. And the other thing she talked about is giving hope. And I think that. That's a big thing that the United Way and Community Action and other agencies do is that, you know, when a person is in that situation, they really don't feel really good about it. And it's not like, oh, I'm poor. I better get out of it. I'm done. Right. It's more of a 
you know, you got to have hope. You got to kind of change your sort of attitude, feel good about yourself, and then start working at the things you need to do to uh, to move back up. Well, and that sounds difficult too, because let's face it, when those are not the best of times, right? And it, it may be difficult to find hope, especially if this is something that uh, you've maybe your parents lived in poverty, uh, you know, long term uh, poverty that. You don't see, she used the term light at the end of the tunnel, but mm -hmm. you don't see that. Mm -hmm. Right, you and, don't. And something else that she said, too, yeah. and that you and I talked about a, bit, a little bit before the program, is that stigma. Right. She said that uh, there is a, a stigma, and you said to me that uh, you even have trouble collecting some of these stories because people just don't want to admit that they're in this situation. Yeah, it's not something that you want to broadcast to the world because they think that it's something that you did wrong. Where a lot of our clients, it's not necessarily something they did wrong. Like I think of one of our clients at South Central Community Action Programs was born into generational poverty, moving from home to home. I mean, you know, she started off at the bottom of the economic ladder, and uh, she just chipped away at, as your um, caller just said, at getting a GED, you know, going on to higher education and whatnot. But it takes time. Something else she said. She said that she dropped out of school. The dropout rate for those living in poverty is much higher than for those who are in a higher economic area. And, you know, there's, I don't know, you know, we've talked about uh, the difference between having a high school degree and then, you know, even a, a, some, an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree, the, the difference economically, what your income would be like. But still, there are a lot of people who decide, you know, no, she didn't say when her first child was born, but, you know, sometimes that has something to do with it. But that is so important. That is that finishing high school, whether you go on to get other education, but that's something that uh, those who are living in poverty have to be told, I'm sure, is that you've got to stay in school. Yeah, the educational programs, I mean, she talked about going back to school after the fact she got her GED and then she's continuing on with her education. But put yourself in the real life situation where you're living in poverty. She she said she was working three jobs at one right, point. Right. So you're in a cycle where you have to work three jobs to pay your bills. When do you find time to go to school? So, I mean, it is really, it just becomes a cycle that feeds itself. Now we have some interventions that work. We have, I mean, the state has programs that allow people to go out and get some education and count that as, a as, as work time um, so that they can continue to receive some other benefits which help them continue on. And, and they're getting educated in high demand areas where they should be able to come out with an associate's degree and get a job. Um, it's not completely hopeless, even for a child who has had multiple adverse childhood experiences. We know that mentoring can counteract that. We know that high-quality child care and high-quality early education, and that's actually something that helps to decrease the dropout, weight, dropout rate. Kids who have access to high-quality early childhood education are much more likely to continue on and complete high school. They're much less likely to be incarcerated. Um, they actually contribute to better classroom environments, which benefit all children's achievement overall. So there are these areas we know where we can focus targeted in interventions to try to counteract some of this cycle of poverty and to try to turn people's stories around. Stephen, I have to admit that uh, when she talked about uh, how much she was paying each week in child care, 
that that blew me away. I mm-hmm. I, I had no idea that that's what uh, you know. I have no idea. That, you know, it's probably a wide disparity depending on the quality uh, and number of kids and all that in a in a daycare center. Now her sounds like her. She's getting a lot of help from her grandparents, which is a good thing because right. she said she was living in the basement too. But that childcare, I mean, almost eight hundred hours a month. Yeah, yeah, it's it's huge. It's a, it's a big impact. And so you can see that there are a lot of hurdles that one has to overcome just to get to a point where they're stable and they can start working on higher education and other goals that they have to, to, to move on up. And from what I could decipher from her story, she actually is receiving some of that state child care benefit. So right. that's her copay out of pocket, but the, mm-hmm. the state is helping to pay for the rest of the child care costs. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Today is part of WITF's Chasing the Dream initiative, Poverty and Opportunity in America. We're joined by Kristen Rotz, president of the United Way of Pennsylvania, and Stephen Martinez, communications director of the Community Action Association of Pennsylvania. We'd like to hear your stories as well, or if you have questions or comments, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. Also want to mention that uh, we are going to continue this conversation uh, over the next few months, but uh, an event to look forward to, uh, there's a free public forum for Thursday, June 9th from 6 to 8 p.m. at uh, the, the WITS Public Media Center here in Harrisburg. Uh, what's it like to live in poverty? What can communities do to ensure affordable housing and quality education is available for all? So many, many of the topics that we're talking about today. But you can be part of this important conversation. Register online at WITF.org slash Chasing the Dream. And let's take some phone calls. Anthony is in Lancaster. Anthony, you're on the air. Yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm working on a master's. I've had to put it off for a few years. Uh, but I was, I, I'm in security, and I moved back from overseas. And I found out here, either I'm overqualified, but I actually found out for jobs I applied for, and, again, I was making a very good salary. Now I'm literally one paycheck away from the poverty level. It's just my wife and son. And I'm just shocked that in so many cases it's who you know, not what you know. Uh, I was, and I don't get all the minutiae on it, but that's just crazy. Now, um, now when, the, you say, when you say who you know, uh, you know, a lot of you're told today one of the good things to do to advance yourself is to network. Um, so, you know, that's one thing. But when you so say when you're coming from overseas, it's very right. difficult to then all of a sudden you don't know anybody. Mm-hmm. But when you say, though, that uh, uh, it was more, more, and I'm emphasizing the word more, more who you know rather than what you know. Uh, that was your experience, though, with uh, someone who would say that, uh, well, you know, I know this person or maybe this person can help you out rather than looking at your educational background? Oh, no, no. I, I was actually told by several people after applying for the job, they already, it was useless applying for the job. It was already picked out. Mm. And, for, and the, what kills me is with the experience that I believe I have, that uh, some of the jobs uh, that, that you can't sur- really survive. And I work for, uh, <laughs> for for the state, and that's just ridiculous that they're paying just above 
poverty level for full-time jobs. Mm-hmm. Hey, well, thank you very much for your call and exp- sharing your experiences. The point he makes, and um, you know, I want to have the two of you uh, comment on this as well. Um, you know, as far as who you know, you know, that's often been the case. Uh, that sometimes that uh, there's a job that, uh, hey, this is the person I want, and even though it has to be posted, that's how it goes. But I also mentioned networking being very important. But the other thing is that there's such competition for good-paying jobs that any little thing like knowing someone may be a help, right? Right, yeah, I... You know, I don't want to make this a discussion about the minimum wage because I know that that's a well. A, that's a, someone else. Someone else has already sent right. an email. We'll but, put our web, website. About but what that. he makes me think is that there are a lot of jobs out there. You can just drive down the street and say now hiring. Right? right. You can see right. those, and so there are positions out there that are available. But unfortunately, those aren't positions that are paying enough. That you know, I feel like if you work, my personal opinion is, if you work forty hours a week, you should be able to you know, get by and make ends meet, but that's not necessarily the case at our minimum wage rate type jobs. So those are jobs that I believe are undervalued in our society. And uh, I think that they, you know, they're important. We need people to do those jobs, but yet we don't value them in the terms of how we pay them. So we have to go after more competitive, you know, less available jobs in order to make ends meet. Yeah, the statistics say that uh, we have created a lot of jobs in the last, well, since 2008. Um, but the statistics also say that many of those jobs that have been created are not as have been described as family sustaining jobs that there are still are a lot of uh, jobs that don't pay that well and you know I, I know there are a lot of policymakers who will criticize and say that uh, you know it, it doesn't make sense that uh, someone is working 40 hours a week but still is below the poverty level right um, you know, that's no, uh, for me anyway, it's it's no commentary on whether minimum wage should be raised or not. But, uh, you know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that uh, that's happening. That's different from years past. All right, let's go to Nancy in Hershey. Nancy, you're on the air. Hi. Um, I agree with uh, everything you're saying, except I have... Uh, I have to- I have been in this area for years and years and years, uh, working with uh, kids in poverty. And two things I want to mention: one is that a great many of them expect to be in prison because they have relatives in prison, and it's sort of like going to be with your uncle or your cousin or this or that. But the other thing I want to mention is that. If, for example, if you look in the Lebanon merchandise, there's all these jobs. They're low wages, right? But you know what? The thing that bothers me is you look at the rents that are available, $600 a month just for an apartment, and that's low. And then these jobs are very difficult jobs, lifting 50 pounds. That's the first thing. The rentals are much more than people can afford, which didn't used to be. And the other thing I want to mention was that there are jobs available in parts of the country, but how do you move if you don't have first month's rent, last month's rent, and security deposit? You can't move. And I have had experience with people who wanted to move to where there was a job, but they couldn't get the money together for those and the the down payments on utilities. You know, this whole thing works against poor people who are doing their best. Anyway, that's how I feel. Well, thank you very much, Nancy. She brought up some topics that uh, we haven't discussed so right. far, but those are a lot of challenges. They are. I I think about 
how she talks about wanting to move to, I guess, a, a better neighborhood. And, and one of our, a lot of the programs that we run are all about neighborhood revitalization and development. And so what we're hoping is that once we get our clients up to a comfortable threshold of living, that they actually, that they don't want to move, but instead, you know, because you're conceding the, the ghetto in some point, you know, if you do that. So we hope that they stay there, apply that knowledge and resources to improve their own communities. But I get what she's talking about and how it's, it's, it's difficult to come up with that kind of money to even afford to, to move up to a better spot. You know, one of the challenges that um, we haven't mentioned, but um, I guess I mentioned in the introduction, is that uh, when you're talking about some of these areas where there are a lot of residents living in poverty, grocery stores, for example, a lot of times, especially in urban areas, that there's not a grocery store nearby, that you have to travel miles somehow, uh, if you don't have a car, public transportation, even to get uh, food. Now, that's not saying it's even healthy food. Healthy food, for the most part, costs more money. There's a higher rate of diabetes amongst people living in poverty because they're not eating as healthy. They're not, they call those food deserts, I believe. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, they're not eating as well because they eat what they can afford. Um, so there's just so many of these things that uh, you can think of. But, you know, something we haven't mentioned, crime. Some of these areas are very dangerous when you talk about people who want to move out. Many times they do that because yeah, they don't feel fair. that their families are safe. Right. Why do we see that, that there's more crime? Uh, of course, I guess that's a question that if we could answer that, uh, it would be solved. But right. it just seems as though there are a lot of, there's a lot more crime in areas where there's high pockets of poverty. Well, if you look at the housing market and the cost of housing, it's kind of driven by demand. So the housing costs become more affordable in areas where there are issues like low crime and, and lack of accessibility to good, fresh, healthy food. Um, so again, it, it's something else that feeds into that cycle that we have to figure out how to come up with community solutions to break that. Let's go uh, to Mavis in Gettysburg. Mavis, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I think uh, when we have this discussion, it's, it's impossible to have it without talking about a top-down, driven, ideological uh, perspective. First of all, a lot of the reasons why people don't talk about their situations is because people who have inherited wealth have a certain perception of the rest of society. And a lot of this, uh, this way of being and thinking comes from their perspective. It's always been that way. Now, we have more knowledge now as a society. We're a lot more educated than we used to be. And it's impossible in this day and time with what has gone on over the past 40 years with uh, this uh, uh, declining income, uh, people not having security on their jobs, like my parents did. I'm a 60-year-old woman who started working in the 70s, and I can tell you, with the bubble bus cycles, uh, people um, having to change jobs, possibly as often as every five years, uh, and, and not being able to do what their parents did. My parents raised three children um, off of government jobs, and they were uh, administrative-type jobs. They retired. They put three children through undergraduate school. Uh, when we 
got to graduate school and law school, of course, we had to take on a lot of that ourselves, but none of us had uh, student loans and things like that. And, and so this is something that is being done from the top down. I remember reading a book by Alan Greenspan, The Age of Turbulence, I think it was either 2007 or 2008, where he talked about the incomes in the United States of white-collar workers being too high. And so we need to level the playing field so that they can meet uh, worldwide uh, income levels. Mm-hmm. And, hey, and, that, and, and the, the re- that's the way we solve inequality in society. Hey, so Mavis, thank there you for- is no way going forward that we can have a discussion about what is going on with economies without talking about the wealthiest people in the society who have done have had a tremendous influence on the policies in this country and worldwide. Hey, Mavis, thank you very much for your call. Uh, We've talked a lot about income uh, inequality here Mm -hmm. in uh, recent years, and it's really not what this program is about. But, you know, something that she did say that uh, maybe you'd like to comment on uh, is that the wealthiest Americans or those who are living pretty well, even if they're living in the middle class, have a hard time relating to those who aren't. Right. Is that an issue? Yeah, I think that there's this perspe- uh, perception out there that um, that low-income poor people need fixing, that they need to be fixed. You know, if it's they're just once we straighten them up, then they'll start then they'll start making money again, and that's not true at all. Uh, I, at least that's one of the biases that I thought I was trying to get at at the earlier right. part of the show, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I thought Mavis was kind of hinting at that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us still, we like to believe that. The old saying that we hear so much in this country is you work hard and you get what you work for and you will have opportunity if you work hard. Um, But when you work in this type of a field day to day, you know that there are a lot of people who are working hard, um, who are just still not getting ahead. And we're doing a lot as a country to try to help them get ahead. But there's also um, a lot of things that clearly aren't working right now. We're getting a lot of emails about people uh, talking about child care in particular and how okay. expensive it is. But uh, here's a, and I'm not going to be able to read the whole thing here. You can see it on our website, WITF.org, but kind of a personal testimony of uh, someone who has had the experience. Um, she says that, uh, and I think it's a she, I don't know that for sure. Uh, oh, yeah, it is. My situation is not really severe, but it could be much worse in a heartbeat. I cannot afford child care. Therefore, my children's father takes care of the kids when I'm at work. In today's world, that seems heroic, but it's not the case in my household. He is inattentive and sleepy most of the time. He loses his phone and doesn't take smoke detectors seriously. They are missing a lot of learning opportunities. They would have a daycare. And many days, especially in the summer, I fear that something bad has happened because I cannot reach them. Because of this, I pay for a home phone when I really don't have the money to pay for a home phone. I want my children to have the same experiences as middle-class children because I know if they do not do not know what the middle-class children are talking about, they feel excluded from the conversation. I grew up a poor kid, and that's how I know. Instead of spending money on some things I should, like a divorce and working out a custody order, my girls and I go on vacation. I pay for preschool. They take ballet and other extracurricular activities. I, I'm not going to be able to go through the whole thing, but it sounds like she's venting a little bit, But uh, and I don't know how typical that is, but it sounds like she fears for even the safety and security of her, of her children there she, when she first started talking about child care. 
Child care quality is really important for the development of a child, and we know there are plenty of situations out there where people are relying on family members or um, they're relying on a local child care center who might not be providing the type of care that we would look for for all the ideal benchmarks, but they are an individual who can make sure that the child is watched over for the day and hopefully can keep them safe. But they're not necessarily interacting with them in a way that's helping them develop their cognitive abilities, their behavioral abilities. Um, and so that's actually a focus for United Way is to expand access to high-quality child care and yeah, pre-kindergarten. It just doesn't, uh, I mean, you just can't say, oh, I have someone to watch the kids and you feel good about it. Uh, you feel secure about it because, you know, these are your your children. You, you want them to be safe. You want to be in, them to be in a situation where they are learning. They're interacting with other kids. Uh, we have a phone call here from Ben in Lebanon County. Ben, you're on the air. Hi, Darren. Darren is my name. Thanks oh, Darren, okay, call. sorry. Um, I just uh, have a thought there about small ownership and, and dignity and liberty. Um, I feel like so much of our society is bent on educating to get jobs, and I don't hear enough about um, insisting that um, people should hope for small small job or small ownership opportunities. And also the other side of that coin would be... Um, like Pope Francis said in Laudatosi, that we need to uh, consider that our money that we spend is a moral decision, and we should spend money um, at businesses that are local, so that we so that we can asphyxiate uh, corporatism, and well, and that we would have a, a widespread ownership. Well, Darren, let me ask you this though, and we only have a few minutes, so I, I, I hate to <laughs> to force you to be quick, but. Uh, when we were talking about the limitations and that, you know, there are people who um, have to be concerned about food and transportation, housing, the essentials, uh, how can they start their own businesses? That's exactly right. Well, okay. That's, that's a huge problem. I mean, that's uh, Hilaire Belloc said, what choice is it if you have the choice between trying to start your own business? and starving. That's no choice at all. Hey, thank so, you thank you very much for your call, Darren. I'm almost out of time. I only have about a minute left. I want to thank both of you for being with us and for those who called in or wrote in uh, with their experiences. What kind of advice would you give those, or maybe I should say, how would what thoughts would you have on the limitations that the people living in poverty? Um, I, w I would say that I think the common denominator between us all is hard work. Like, we're all hard workers. Um, I think one of the things that Community Action United Way both do is that we give those who are struggling to get by hope, and we give them a place to start, and they, uh, and and we enable themselves to to lift themselves back up into the middle class. Mm -hmm. Kristen, about fifteen seconds. Well, I think those of us who are doing well have to really think hard about how we can contribute to the overall health of our communities and helping others do well. And so, think about what you can do, whether it's volunteering or donating or making a contribution in some other way. Mm -hmm. Kristen Rotz from uh, the uh, United Way of Pennsylvania and Stephen Martinez from the Community Action Association of Pennsylvania. Thank both of you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you.